I set up four different ways of interacting with culture. As the church, as Christians, as the people of God, we are called to be in the world, though not of the world, and there has been a lot of conversation and ink spilt about exactly what that means. Uh, but I identified last week four kind of main themes or four main camps that you might call them, uh, which were uh, the first was uh, Christians and the church who uh, interact with culture as a way to battle with culture. And this, uh, you know, goes back to a sense of when Constantine declares uh, Christianity the official state religion of Rome and follows forward into modern day of like, hey, let's have political influence or let's uh, fight back to culture to say like, hey, this Christianity needs to be uh, the top hand at the end of the putting your hands on top game uh, in culture and kind of uh, move forward and make the laws and make the rules. And uh, then there is a different motivation where the church is a feeling of separating from culture. This goes back to the uh, monastic monetar- or, uh, monastery movement where people are removing themselves from culture because they're recognizing, hey, to be connected to culture, con- culture at this point is so uh, depraved and so lost and so destroyed by sin that we need to separate ourselves from it so that we can commune with God and now bring something, return to uh, the culture to bring something to it. In a modern context, this might look like uh, Christian subculture creating, so creating, you know, Christian clothing and Christian media and Christian fast food, even though none of those have a soul and can be baptized. And you have a sense of let's create a world in which we can be in the world, but not of it, but yet maybe not even really in. And then uh, on the other side of the spectrum, so those are both ways if we kind of line them up on a spectrum of confronting or criticizing culture. And then you have the uh, engaging with culture side of the spectrum. Uh, in which you have uh, both the mirroring of culture, uh, which this probably is most reflected in the, the mainline denominational movement uh, in the 50s and 60s, which basically said like, hey, let's, let's try to uh, reflect and gain acceptance from culture uh, at the, maybe the sacrifice of redefining historic interpretations of scripture to say, well, maybe culture, maybe we can agree more with culture here. Uh, again, maybe it was a, there was some benefit to reexamining how we interpreted some uh, some. Uh, doctrines and dogmas and and theology. However, there was also a bit of becoming lost in that. And then lastly, there is the copying culture. Uh, This probably has its best uh, roots in the the church growth movement of how do we build churches that look like well-run businesses. They have great vision statements. They have great mission statements. They uh, meet culture where it's at. Uh, And again, it's something where it's attempting to like, hey, let's take uh, all of the gap between culture and try to close it, but yet might become indistinguished from culture. In fact, that's, I, I thought about this this week. I'm like, what are, what are these at their best and what are they at their worst? And to have a position where the church battles culture, at your best, you are a good critic. But at your worst, uh, you alienate people. You alienate uh, people who are not otherwise prone to your point of view. To be separate at best, this protects People, children, uh, those who are influential uh, from, from a cultural turning up the hot water kettle on the frog, so to speak, if you're familiar with the metaphor. But uh, at worst, it becomes irrelevant, and it insulates, and it creates an echo cl- uh, enclave. And then mirror, at best, it understands culture. It meets culture to understand where it's at, but at worst, it gets lost and becomes completely indistinguishable from culture. Uh, similarly, 
uh, to copy culture. At best, it meets culture where it's at. Uh, and at worst, it's completely indistinguishable from a well-run business versus the church. And so again, I put those on a spectrum of saying, hey, there's two on the side of critiquing and confronting, con confronting culture, and then there's two on the side of, uh, of engaging and understanding culture. And last week, we talked about, okay, what does it look like then in the book of Acts? We see the book of Acts in the early church in a healthy way confronting culture in which they are creating communities of people who are free from that which the world seeks after and culture sees as the highest goals. And we talked about how you see in the church, the early church in Acts 16, Paul and the early church being free from a love of money, from a love of safety, and therefore are able to be free people and prevent a, or present a compelling vision of a counterculture that when people are finding, seeking after money, safety, other regular idols of the world, when they find that to be wanting, they can actually see an alternative that is compelling and lived out before them. But this week we want to add the other side of the spectrum because to just create a counterculture, again, is insular and probably becomes irrelevant to culture. Because on the other side of the spectrum, and we're going to see this in Acts 17, Paul is going to do the work to understand and engage culture so he can fully embrace and critique it at the same time. Because you can't transform that which you do not engage with. The way you know this is because everybody has either had the experience or seen the experience where maybe somebody with younger siblings they will commonly torture and, uh, you know, completely make fun of their younger siblings. But when somebody else does it, now it's not so cool because that's my family or that's my favorite sports team. I can say that they're horrible and that they're going to lose every year, but you can't for crying out loud. Or that's my hometown. That's my place that I identify with. And those who critique it need to be an insider of it. Because it's been said that ways to engage someone in an argument, if you're just faced with a person that you just do not see eye to eye with in any way, you can't argue, you can't fact check, you can't even plead them away from their point. But they say, here's what you should do. You should attempt to present a problem in which you are trying to solve together with them. To say, hey, here's the problem that I'm seeing, and I want to engage with you to solve it. Because in doing that, you instantly move into an us and outside of two thems. And they say that's the most common way to actually be convincing and persuasive in an argument. Because you have to be on the same side as someone in order to transform them. And you need to understand them in order to have compassion and be on the same side with them. That's the entire story of the Bible. Is God, when sin enters the world, there enters the ultimate to thems. God and in, in his triune community and his creation 
is separated from it. But the Abraham story is him calling to a person to say, I am going to bless you to create these thems and bring them into an us. And the Israel story becomes, I'm going to bless you as a nation to take the thems and create them into an us. And the Jesus story is God saying, I myself take two thems and enter in as an us. And the story of Acts, the story of the church, the story of Jesus now lived out through us, through his spirit, is the story of us taking thems and creating them into an us. It's the entire message of Ephesians 2. You were separated from God, but he came towards you. And now you go towards who you're separated from. So let's look at the story in Acts 17. It's going to start in verse 16. Paul in Athens. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God you made, or the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we indeed are, are, indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from the, their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and the woman named Demarius, and others with them.
Paul enters into a situation in which he looks around and is first distressed, which that actually has a positive connotation. It's not distressed as he's terrified or he's angry, but rather he's distressed in a way that he has compassion on those he sees. Because he recognizes, man, these these people are doing everything that they possibly can to interact with the transcendent, to, to live with the holy. But yet, by missing by one degree at the beginning of a long journey, they're missing by leagues and miles. But what he doesn't do is he doesn't enter in and just try to start a coup and rise up and gain political power and litigate that change. Nor does he say, let's get out of here. Let's be completely separate and enclaved away from it. He will criticize it. In fact, he does. That entire speech is, could be studied in a law school of how to critique, but yet also agree with your, your audience. And we'll look at that here in a second. But first you see him, as he says at the beginning of the speech. In fact, let's look back at verse 22, I believe. Yeah. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, you know, that's, it's a word. It's a, it's a school that was built into the side of a hill, Mars Hill, and sometimes I can pronounce it, sometimes I can't. It's like the word specific. I got it that time. Um, Men of Athens, I perceived that in every way you were very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The Paul first, he talks like, I, I spent time. I walked around. I've been in the marketplace. I've been in the synagogue. And I looked at what you believe. And he doesn't look at it just to find its straw man portions. What are the weakest points in which I can enter in? In fact, We'll see in his speech, he actually creates a steel man out of it. He creates their argument and presents it back to them at its strongest points. So he's not just looking to figure out what are the ways I can get in and subvert it, but how can I actually know what you believe? What can I engage with it? How can I respect it? He's going to quote back their own poets. He can take their own voices and say back to them what they believe with such authority as one who actually is a part of them. In order to interact and transform culture, in order to have actual compassion and relationship with culture, we as the church need to know, yes, what we believe. In fact, we'll talk about that as well this morning. We need to know what is the truth of the scriptures. We need to be constantly meditating and growing in our understanding of who God is and how he has made this world. And we also need to be steeped in an understanding of what culture believes, of what culture and parts of culture that would disagree with the scriptures believe, what they would agree with in that which we believe. You need to know it and you need to know where it says what is true and where it strays from what is true. See, all ideas All beliefs, all faiths, all messages are based in truth. That's the entire principle of marketing. 
Find something that is true and build off of it. Find something that resonates with the human heart, not because it's a well-polished lie, but because it is a kernel of a profound truth. And then repackage it and present your product as the solution to the emptiness of their soul. It goes off. But regardless, everything that you watch, the reason why films are compelling, the reason why music is compelling, if you find a song or a, mu or a movie or a philosophy or a political speaker or whoever you find compelling, it's because they are building their argument on something profoundly true and in line with who God is and how he made the world. It wouldn't resonate if it wasn't. It would get no traction. Some ways to know and respect an argument is knowing what can be affirmed, what can be learned from, what can be a bridge to join the side of culture and transform from within. It's the doctrine of common grace. Common grace says that all mankind is made in God's image. We all, whether we want to or not, image who he is. Reflect the beauty and glory of God to the world. That's why every child, regardless of situation, regardless of potential or mental capacity, is seen as something as beautiful and to be celebrated because it's an image bearer entering into the world. It's another piece of the holy entering in. And because of that, we intrinsically have gifts that he's given us that are just parts of who he is, parts of his spirit, parts of the way that he is trying to or communicate himself to the world that we cannot help but communicate and live out before everyone. And so because of that, Music does not have to be explicitly about Christian themes to be beautiful. Films do not have to be on pure flicks to be steeped in truth. Like somebody said, like the last two weeks you've been dogging on pure flicks. Pure flicks is fine. And you know what? Even the parts where the, you're like get really clamped up, even though it's really poor production and acting, is because they're communicating something that's true and it shines even in the midst of the production value. Philosophy, politicians, influencers, artists, they are creating something that is good and beautiful and true. Structures like education, political policy, doesn't have to be explicitly Christian to be connected to something that creates flourishing for humankind. And this is true of even pastors and Christian thought leaders. The opposite is actually true, and maybe we should say it this way, that no human being though they are created in the image of God, is all good. That all thought leaders, including pastors, including me, including thought leaders in Christianity, including influencers, have ways that they have been corrupted by sin, which is true of culture as well. In fact, maybe that's the way to phrase that it's understanding of common grace 
and accepting that no one is all good and all bad. So your enemy and the one presenting an argument that you feel to be a damnable lie is not all bad. In fact, they're connecting to some truth, and it's your job to find it. And the person who is speaking on behalf of Scripture and speaking on behalf of the Bible, in some ways, their sinful humanity will distort truth. That's true of me and true of you. Which is why we can enter into somebody's argument that's against us and actually find parts that we can say yes and amen. In fact, I need to repent of the way that I've missed that. That's the easiest way to join somebody and get on their side, by the way, and to gain trust with them is to admit where you're wrong. Admit where you can repent and learn and grow into the image of the good, the beautiful, and the true. Paul does this. Let's look at his argument, starting in verse 24. So a brief setup. He's talking, as it says, to Epicurean philosophers and Stoic philosophers. The Epicureans, in a nutshell, believed that there was a God who created everything, but he was distant. Or the gods themselves, actually they believed in polytheism, that the gods themselves were all distant, and they were just off having a rockin' party of the ages, and the best way to communicate and connect with them is to try to Go and live a hedonistic lifestyle and live like the gods. If you can, if the money affords you to, eat and drink for tomorrow we die was the Epicurean philosophy of like, let's enjoy what we can and even connect with the gods as we do. Because they're far off, they're distant, and they, that's the only way to really connect with them. They don't care otherwise. The Stoics believed in there was a god force or a God that created everything, in fact, was in everything, almost a pantheistic world, like the God and the holy is in everything. And they lived in a very sense, uh, sense of a deterministic life, that everything that happened to you, every tragedy, every loss, the best thing that you could do is just accept that we're all part of a closed system, and that was bound to happen because tragedy, you, you don't try to avoid tragedy, you don't try to build up from tragedy, you just learn to accept it. That's where we get a stoic uh, view of something as somebody who's not showing any emotion, but rather they're just saying, yeah, I just accept everything as part of a closed deterministic system. And so that's who Paul is communicating here, and this is what he says. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven of earth. That, by the way, was a connection to the Stoic philosophy. Hey, there's a God who's made everything, and he's in everything. But then, the Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. At this point, he's now critiquing the Stoic philosophy, but at the same time, he's connecting to the Epicurean philosophy. Hey, the gods aren't here, and they're not living in temples and served by human hands. They're off somewhere, you know, getting crazy deity drunk or whatever, uh, and they're doing their thing, and they should, we should have a good time with them. Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Hey, Epicureans, you're right. He's not served by human hands, but he's not off distant either. He's here, and he gives you life. He gives you breath. He gives you spirit. He gives you everything that you have, which, again, he's in everything. Stoics, you're right about that. Nor is he served by human hands, uh, as though he needs anything, since he himself 
gives to all of mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from every man one nation of mankind to live on all of the face of the earth, having determined, deterministic philosophy, Stoics, he's determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places that they should seek God. Here's why he's determined it. Not so that you can just try to turn off your emotion about every tragic thing that happens to you, but so that you might seek God, though he's not far from any of you, Epicureans, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's not actually far from each one of us. For in him we have and move and have our being, as even as some of your own poets have said, and these are the Stoics, for we are indeed his offspring. You can continue to go through and each line is going to, in some ways, be agreeing with the Stoics and critiquing the Epicureans, while simultaneously he will then flip and critique, or to agree with the Epicureans and critique the Stoics, all the while taking what they believe to be good and beautiful and true and elevating it and saying, this is right. And simultaneously saying, but it misses the mark here. It's a way that he creates thems and joins them as an us and is able to critique from the inside. There's a, a number of things in culture right now that are probably talked about most. I'm going to pick some really hot button ones um, because I like creating trouble for myself um, and because I want to engage in these areas uh, as an act of discipleship. Let's just take sexuality, gender, and race. Yeah, fun morning. Let's do it. Um, these are talked about in every form of life. You cannot engage with culture in any way and not engage with ideas on these, on what the world believes to be true, what the church believes to be true, what different denominations of the church believe to be true, what different slices of philosophy believe to be true on sexuality, gender, and race. And as the church, there is plenty that is espoused as gospel and culture that we can and should disagree with, that we can and should speak prophetically towards or create a free counterculture that presents an alternative way of living. But I was reminded this week of our first year anniversary at Soma Downtown, uh, which is the weekend after Labor Day, which is the weekend that we launched uh, in 2015. So this was September of 2016. And we were going through a series in Genesis. The OGs may remember this series. And uh, we were going just straight through the book, big chunks, but still probably doing about 30 sermons in the book of Genesis. And we took the four or five sermons to land in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and particularly in the Imago Dei, the image of God, what I've been talking about, how it's in all in each one of us. And we talked about the image of God when it comes to marriage and singleness and the image of God. Uh, this, way, <laughs> this was a terrible calendar planning. On our anniversary, a big celebratory Sunday, we're talking about the image of God and gender, which this is, by the way, 2016. I searched high and low for writings or thoughts or teachings on the image of God and gender. And in 2016, nobody had touched this. And like many things we do at SOMA, we're like, we'll just blindly jump off the cliff first and see where we land and if people can choose to follow us or not. And so we're stepping into this place where I'm studying about 
the image of God and gender. And I remember going into that week in my study, having an idea of where I thought the teaching was going to go. And I thought it was going to be mainly critical towards culture's thoughts on, on gender. I thought it was going to be mainly trying to focus on certain areas. But in the midst of the study, I came across thinkers who were lovingly affirming parts of where culture says, hey, look how this is true of the way the world sees now with the gender sexuality movement. Look how the church has missed the boat in being able to be gracious and engage with it well. It turned me on to thinkers. Uh, one's a pastor named Preston Sprinkle, who I think has done amazing, amazing work in this area. In fact, he has a podcast called Theology in the Raw, in which he regularly is interviewing transgender Christians, transgender atheists, transgender activists, uh, people who have uh, transitioned, detransitioned, gone back and forth multiple times, presenting multiple perspectives and understanding, using compassionate language, and regularly teaching and critiquing where I had missed the mark, where I was big on truth and light on grace. And it began a time where I began to think, man, where are areas that I have been quick to speak? Hey, here's the truth of God, but been slow to understand. But where is the truth of God in my opponent? And so we can look at things like not only gender as it relates to sexuality, but the gender equality movement. You can look at feminism and recognize the good, the beautiful, and true that has been fighting to remove shadowy corners where women have been abused, where have not been recognized as equal image bearers, made in the image of God, created to co-rule on earth as it is in heaven. And you can recognize, if you agree with it or disagree with it, man, there's been eons of progress that have been for the good of the kingdom of God. And you can look at chauvinism. <laughs> and you can say, yeah, there's a lot I disagree with how that's trying to maybe hold on to, grasp onto the sense of like, well, but there's been a system which men have dominated and we want to hold on and grasp onto that. But you can also recognize that if you oppose somebody, that you're looking across from someone who probably is is fighting for on the behalf of the fact that you see now men, in a recent study, 15% of men have zero close friends. That's up from only 3% of men in 1990. This was a study that was presented by David French, an article he had recently on friendship. A friend kept telling me to read it, and I finally did. And he presented the fact that one of the reasons this is, is because, and he said, I, he's a huge advocate for the progressive ways that we have created more opportunities for women in world and culture. But he said, we also recognize that we simultaneously have to be finding ways where men have now fe felt alienated and ostracized. And he wasn't saying this as someone who agrees with a chauvinistic movement, but he was saying this as one who could understand his opponent understand where they were coming from, understand where there was hurt, 
understand where there was a yearning for something true, which is to simultaneously continue to say, yes, men, you are called to be created in the image of God, to be co-rulers, to be deeply relational and imaging your God and having emotional health and strength. And again, I know there's part of it just like, well, but like men have been holding on to the power for so long, they just need to get with it. Yes, that's probably true, but here's the reality. You're not going to win anybody who thinks differently with that attitude. You are not going to be able to speak critically and transform if you present yourself as an opponent and not someone who says, yeah, I understand where you're coming from. And race, very hot button right now, mainly probably debated around critical race theory or CRT. Here's what I find interesting about CRT. Everybody has a very strong opinion of it. Nobody can define it. Maybe not nobody. That's probably overstating it. But maybe it's this. The proportion in which somebody is upset about either it's being taken too seriously or not seriously enough seems to be exactly proportionate in the less that they can actually define it. As a simple working definition of critical race theory that has both positive and negative things for the world, it is an attempt in an academic way to describe how a history of race in America and the world, but particularly in America, through slavery and white supremacy, though many of these things have been eradicated, still have lasting effects in the world. There are things that as Christians, we can affirm that, yes, there's been horrific history in our country when it comes to race. And just like the person who was an alcoholic and is now recovering, or was addicted to pornography and is now recovering, or pick your sin, you never say, but we're done with that now. But that's fully put away, because the moment I say it's no longer a problem is probably the way that it could be insidiously creeping in. And so critical race theory, I think, does a good job of presenting, hey, let's continue to examine these. Now, it does in some ways right now what you see in very uh, random parts of the world or society and maybe are growing in influence. Very poor jobs of presenting solutions in which you're having second graders write papers of saying, I'm the oppressor class or I'm not the oppressor class. No, I don't think that's probably healthy and good and right. But as Christians, we can understand it, we can affirm it, and we can critique it with the truth of God. All right, I I think I've sufficiently stirred up enough emails for the week. Um, I get the person who listens to this and says, Kent, great, you, you, you don't know my life because this sounds completely overwhelming. I have what feels like 700 children living in my house and under my care, or I have a complete unhealthy work-life balance, and that's just to keep my job. I have so many responsibilities that I don't have time to now go out and seek and understand every niche position and every aspect of culture. And that's actually true, which is partially why 
I don't want to shy away from discussing these things. Even in areas where I will admit, you can go back and listen to recording and point out areas that, uh, that I just described that I probably missed or got wrong. And some areas that I probably got, I think, in a way that is helpful for our community at this time. Both are true. Nobody's all good and all bad. No sermon is all good and all bad. And so I want to be a place where we can have pastors and MC leaders and those who are leading people doing the best that they can to try to engage with certain areas where they're passionate about or that they are, are excited about or maybe you know, have understanding or experience in so that we as a body can build each other up to be able to understand and engage culture and become a counterculture that is free from the idols of the world, able to critique it, but also understanding and engaging of it. I don't mean to overly critique the church, but in this area, I've seen sometimes, uh, I've mentioned last week, a knee-jerk reaction to say, I don't want to deal with these certain topics because it gets too murky. I'm going to offend someone. I'm going to say something wrong. I'm just, again, going to oh, go ahead and admit, I have probably said things wrong. I've probably offended unnecessarily. For that, I, I will authentically apologize if you bring it forward to me. But I also want to recognize that in culture, we need to be unafraid to disciple each other, even when we might disagree with each other, even when we might overspeak or underspeak or not think about someone's individual perspective or understanding that they bring to it. Now that you bring forward, man, I hadn't thought of that. So continue to sharpen one another. Continue to grow in the unity of the body to the full maturity. This is ultimately what Paul does, because I know sometimes the church says, man, we just want to focus on the gospel, which again is actually a great thing to continually say, hey, the reason that we exist as a church is to proclaim that the kingdom of God is now made possible by people being freed from sin, not by their own works, but because Jesus has performed all necessary for relationship and redemption in God. And by his cross and resurrection, we now enter in as sons and daughters by nothing that we could do on our own, but by grace alone. And Paul, in every letter he writes, after writing that portion, will then extend to the section of saying, because that is true, deal with this disagreement in this way. Forgive this person for this thing. Cross boundaries with the Jews and the Gentiles because of this truth. Paul's never going to say, hey, I preach the gospel at the expense of strengthening our ability to engage and understand niche cultural issues. But in fact, every letter, what we know about how Paul might have engaged niche cultural issues is because he says, because the gospel is true, because I want you to know that first and foremost, now therefore live it out in culture in these specific ways. And so we want to continue to engage these things and we want to continue to open each other up to critique and understanding in unity and love. Again, you can come and critique what I've said. I, I would ask you in the best, let's do it together as brothers and sisters. Sharpen me as a brother. And I want to sharpen you back as a brother and a sister, as a family of God. I 
I have to announce now that that was all point one and this is point two, but point two and three are like really, really short. Um, so for everybody just freaked out. Um, that was point one. <laughs> that Paul does the work to actually engage culture. Point two, Paul does the work to show up in culture. Again, he shows up at the synagogue. He shows up at the marketplace. He shows up to Mars Hill at the Areopagus. Got it. Uh, he shows up and he engages with people's ideas. The way that we say it regularly at Soma Downtown is this. Get in people's pictures. Get in your neighbor's birthday pictures and in their wedding pictures and in their funeral pictures and in their just showing up at the fair for fun pictures. Get in people's pictures and in their lives and show up and build relationships so that you might understand, have compassion for people who you might not share every belief with. And then have a place to be able to affirm and critique from the inside of a relationship. Here's a second century letter uh, to Diogenetus, which tons of babies always being born around here, and everybody's looking for unique names. I don't see a lot of Diogenetuses running around. I'm sure it'll be trending, though, in five years. Uh, but a second century letter to Diogenetus wrote this about the second century church. They're trying to describe what's the church like. It says this, Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak in strange dialects or follow some outlandish way of life. With regards to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether in Greek or foreign. And yet, there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full roles as citizens, but labor as uh, uh, the disability of aliens. For uh, any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them, meaning that they do not offer them for sacrificial rituals. They share meals, hospitality, but not their wives. They have a biblical sexual ethic. They are obedient to the laws that have been made, but by their own lives, they supersede the laws. They are impoverished and make many rich. That's a way to critique love of money in our culture. To speak in general terms, we may say that Christians is to the world what the soul is to the body. As the, as the soul is present in every part of the body while remaining distinct from it, so Christians are found in all cities of the world but cannot be identified with the world. As the visible body contains the invisible soul, so Christians are seen living in the world. Because when Jesus showed up, the critique of him was, hey, he keeps eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors. Because Jesus knew, in order to transform the world, I need to be in relationship of actual love and compassion with the world. He still critiques when he says to the woman caught in adultery, has anyone thrown a rock at you? Go now, for you are forgiven. And sin no more because he actually built in that moment the trust and the relationship to say that. Paul critiques, and you see at the end of this, by the way, that was second point, third point. See, it's moving faster. Uh, Paul critiques, and you see at the end of it that some people say, I'm interested. In fact, you even point out a couple people who join the kingdom. And many say, 
he's an idiot. All of this work does not now mean that you will become someone who wins every single person, that you become a person who wins friends and influences people in every single way. I, actually, I think you will in a lot of cases, but rejection still comes. We're still putting forward the kingdom of God, who as every description I can find of it is a narrow road, and few find it. You can scatter lots of seed. And maybe that's the point that we need to recognize, is you don't know what you're doing in someone's life. In 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to say, hey, some are going to harvest, but some are going to scatter seeds, some are going to water. It doesn't matter. Our call is to invest in the souls of women and men, the only thing infinite in our world. That yes, all this will be redeemed, but they will be redeemed in a way that is infinite and powerful in imaging God. And so we, like Paul, have a sense of distressed compassion. Because I know a lot of you, and I know that you actually really want your family members to understand the reality of the gospel that you're trying to live out in front of them. You will desperately actually really love your neighbors. You have a sense of distress of the fact of, I just really want them to understand and seek a sense of transformation. I want my coworkers to be transformed. And that distress is right and true and should be continued to build into our sense that we carry forward to engage and understand culture and, yes, live in a free countercultural that, counterculture that will confront and critique it. Because we, re- we have the hope that, yes, it's a narrow road and few find it, but those who find it, well, Jesus also says it's like a mustard seed. It's going to start small, but it's going to grow. It's going to have power. It's going to transform. It's going to break people from bondage of the lies that they do believe. And you and I were amongst those who were in bondage to lies, lost in our sin, and Jesus enters in and saves those who disciples and saves and engages with those, who disciples and engages and saves with those, who engages and disciples and saves those who eventually came to you. And the seed began to grow and sprout into a tree that is bigger than all of the other trees in the forest so that you could become someone who engages those, who disciples those. And I kept saying saves those. Jesus saves. It's not, not on you. Take that off your shoulders. Uh, but you play a part in that role. The God of the universe says, hey, the most base mission of what I'm setting out to do is to build the kingdom, and I want you to do it through my spirit. And in that way, we commune with him who came and dined with tax, cleaner, tax collectors and sinners. And we relate to them and we meet him and we image him more to a world who needs to see that. A way that we commune with him also on a weekly basis is through the act of communion. If you didn't grab a communion on your way in, a little wafer and cup representing the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. Uh, Grab it in the future or grab it now. It's up to you.
Because we come together as people each week to commune with each other and to commune with our God who has come to engage and understand and transform us by saying, hey, this is my body broken for you so that you might have relationship with me and my Father. Take and eat. And then, imaging his death, he took the cup, held it up, and said, this is my blood that is poured out for you to wash you clean of your sin and enter you into a relationship where you are purely righteous. Take and drink. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for us to be given your Spirit's gift of a compassionate distress for neighbors, for family members, for coworkers, for friends, for parts of culture, for sectors of influence. Give us your spirit's distress that made Jesus stop and weep and saying, Israel, if you only knew, I would comfort you like a mother comforts a child. That weeps for culture, but yet then doesn't separate it or just smack it in the head, but then rather says, I want to understand it. I want to engage it. I want to relate to it so that I can be a part of, though still being free from it, can transform it can be, as the letter said, like a soul is to the body in every portion of culture that I can't be as one individual, but as a body with my brothers and sisters, as a family, we can be connected to every portion and city and neighborhood, even by a degree of separation, possibly, in this entire city and and crazily enough in the world that we live in and much of the world. And so allow us to be people that are connected in all of the world like a like a soul and distinct having something to portray to a watching world that seems to be constantly having individuals or groups grow disenchanted with the status quo and are looking for a kingdom that actually is being built from underneath their noses I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.